Well, Nick, thank you so much for appearing on the Compulsive Readers podcast. And for those of you who are tuning in, it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Nick Courtright to the podcast. Nick is the founder and executive editor of Atmosphere Press. He is the author of The Forgotten World, a poetry collection about Americanness and identity in a vast global culture, as well as Let There Be Life, which has been called a continual surprise and a revelation by Naomi Shihab Nye, and Punchline, a national poetry series finalist. His prose and poetry have appeared in such places as the Harvard Review, the Southern Review, the Kenyan Review, Boston Review, the Huffington Post, the Best American Poetry, and I'm not going to keep you all here all day uh, to hear the complete list of publications. Those are some pretty major journals. Um, and he has also completed a doctorate from the University of Texas at Austin and a Master of Fine Arts degree from Texas State University. And he has been a professor of English at the University of Texas in St. Edwards, as well as other colleges and universities. And a scholar practitioner, he is going to be speaking to us today about his debut scholarly collection. And Nick, would you be so kind as to kick off the podcast with a brief reading from your wonderful project? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. And thanks, Christina, for having me on The Compulsive Reader. I'm uh, really excited to talk about this work. It's interesting to be able to talk about scholarly work as opposed to, you know, just the, the poetry that I've written and also to talk about scholarly work outside of the classroom, which was historically where I would have been discussing it. So as you mentioned, I'm going to start by just reading a brief excerpt uh, of this book, uh, The Proofs, The Figures, uh, Walt Whitman and the Meaning of Poems. Uh, and this section I'm going to read is from chapter one. Uh, and it's going to be interesting in that it's this is a book about Whitman and this section doesn't actually talk about Whitman at all. Uh, it talks more about uh, a situation that we all may have encountered. So here it is. It's 5.54 on a Friday evening and you're stuck in traffic. It's one of those days. You creep a little forward, then stop, then creep, then stop. You have a six o'clock reservation with your significant other at this nice restaurant the two of you have been dying to try. But now here you are, still a good 20 minutes away and staring at a sea of taillights before you. So you take out your phone and fire off a quick text to your partner. Sorry, but I'm going to be a little late. Your partner's response? Fine. Now, still sitting there in traffic, you have to decipher this text. What does fine mean anyway? According to the Random House Unabridged Dictionary, please bear with me while I cite the dictionary, it means something like this. Adjective. One, of superior or best quality of high or highest grade, fine wine. Two, choice, excellent or admirable, a fine painting. Three, consisting of minute particles, fine sand, a fine puree. Or this, 
adverb, one, informal, in an excellent manner, very well. He did fine on the exams. She sings fine. Two, very small. She writes so fine I can hardly read it. Or this, noun, one, a sum of money imposed as penalty for an offense or dereliction, a parking fine. Two, law, a fee paid by a feudal tenant to a landlord as on the renewal of tenure. Somehow, we know that none of those definitions really fit this situation and probably are abject, abjectly misleading. In today's parlance, if someone said she sings fine, as the example of adverb number two goes, would we really view that as a compliment in an excellent manner or a backhanded denigration of the singer's ability? And in our late to dinner scenario, does fine really mean the partner is, well, fine? Or is it more possible that he or she is angry, upset, annoyed, or frustrated? I offer this example to get us thinking about how we determine meaning in a text. How do we know what to do with a comment as ambiguous as fine, especially when we don't have the tonal cues of speech to assist us? Somehow we figure it out or we don't figure it out and struggle because of it. In our process of interpretation, we likely take into account our history with the other person and maybe the relationship of each person to punctuality. Are you chronically late and your punctual partner just can't take it anymore? Or are you always on time and this slip is a total anomaly? You'll also take into account the other person's general tone and attitude and inclinations, whether he or she is happy-go-lucky and roll with the punches or is prone to anxiety and distress. Did you two have a fight last night or is this your partner's birthday? Additionally, your own attitude and inclinations play an enormous role in shaping how we receive even an objective message and admittedly, those inward inclinations we probably aren't thinking about as much as we should. We also, of course, have to survey the meaning of the words being used and our understanding of how those words may mean different things in different places or contexts or may have changed over time. For example, fine from someone who is 25 years old may be very different from someone who is 75 years old just because the connotation of words evolve. Surely the dictionaries of the future will account for the evolutionary changes in the word. But we as readers are often left scrambling through present day usage when we encounter a text, even if the text is decades or even centuries old. All of these considerations clamor for a seat at the table of your interpretive conclusions when an interpretive opportunity confronts you. And this happens dozens of times every day in every conversational interaction, and of course, in every moment that one has a book in his or her hands. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that excerpt. Would you be so kind as to tell me about the larger project? that this selection is called from? Yeah, so this uh, selection uh, is from uh, the book, The Proofs of Figures, Walt Whitman and the Meaning of Poems, 
which is basically a book length explication or examination of poetic interpretation using one single eight line Walt Whitman poem. So it's it's kind of a, a maniac's project, I think. It's 286 pages long about an eight line poem. Uh, so it's definitely diving pretty deep into things. Uh, but in my experience, you know, when I was an educator, uh, a lot of times we would get into these discussions of what a poem means in a literature class. We'd be trying to analyze it and people would be throwing out all sorts of different interpretations like, oh, I'm going to interpret this word over here. Or what about the history of the poet over here? Or what about the book that it was in? And all of these different things were sort of flying around uh, at us at all times. So this book is sort of an attempt to break down one piece at a time uh, the different ways that you can interpret a poem. So it's in four parts. The first is all about the words of the poem itself, about sort of formal interpretation. Uh, part two is about history, and it goes into all sorts of information about Walt Whitman's history, the history of you know, transcendentalism, the 19th century. Uh, and then part three is about how frames, like where you find the poem, uh, is going to have an impact on how you read it. You're going to think about it differently if you see it on the side of a bus, uh, as opposed to if you are reading it for a class. And part four is maybe my favorite part of all, and that's about the reader, which is about how every single one of us, whenever we're reading a poem, uh, we're bringing our own baggage to the table as well. Uh, so this book is just sort of working its way through to try to come up with some sort of you know, grand pathway or map for coming up with some sort of, you know, understanding of any poem out there. It doesn't have to be a Whitman poem, but quite literally any poem. Uh, or as the text message example I just gave, I sort of indicates uh, any bit of text in any context whatsoever. Yeah, I really like the structure of using a single poem as a kind of point of entry to these larger questions. I would love to hear more about why you chose Whitman as your case study. It's kind of, it's kind of random, honestly. Like I thought about, you know, all sorts of different writers. Like I wouldn't even say that Whitman, he's not like my favorite poet or anything like that. Um, I think he was an interesting person to do this first off because obviously he has some notoriety, you know, like I, you wouldn't want to spend nearly 300 pages writing about something and then you tell somebody about it and they haven't heard of that person. So there were only a, a few, you know, poets that I thought maybe would be interesting. I also liked the idea of using a very short poem. Um, you know, just it being eight lines really gives you, uh, you know, a lot to dive into without it getting overwhelming. Um, and he's just an interesting guy. I uh, really, when it came down to it, I was, you know, I liked the idea of using Whitman. I liked the idea of using Dickinson. Um, the trick with her, of course, is, you know, that we don't have as much concrete history on her from when she was alive as we do Whitman. Um, but really it, it could have been anyone. And I think that that's kind of the, the beauty 
of this kind of project is that really this one poem that I'm using is just a singular case study uh, and it could be about anybody. Yeah, well said. And I think it's interesting too that, you know, Whitman isn't really your favorite poet because you can really see in the manuscript that you have that critical distance that critics always struggle to attain with work that they're very close to. So I think that that, that kind of critical distance is certainly a, a plus and it's really smart, um, you know, as you're conceptualizing the project to choose a text that affords that, that kind of distance and objectivity. Uh, but you mentioned in conversation that this is also a book about joy. Can you say more? Yeah, I do think it, it's a book about joy in, in, you know, there's always a little bit of iron, irony whenever you're talking about joy, I think, in a kind of a sarcastic fashion. But I, I do think it's a book about joy because it shows that literally like any item of text can be something that you can talk about, that you can think about, that you can, you know, really dive into. And there is a lot of joy and a lot of pleasure that one can get from poetic interpretation. I think that sometimes, you know, you know, a student in a class might have a teacher where they give some sort of interpretation. Uh, and the teacher's like, no, that's not quite right, or no, that's wrong. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with this book is the idea that it is right. They're all right. Um, that if a poem is eliciting any sort of response, even a non-evidentiary one, even one that's based completely off of the, the student or the interpreter or the reader's own life where they're basically like ignoring the poem altogether, that if the poem elicits that response, that there is a truth to that. And I think that that is uh, a joyful sort of thing. A lot of times people are like worried about getting it right with interpreting a poem, writing a good essay, having a good result, you know, being correct about it. Um, but because there's so many different angles, so many different inroads to interpreting a poem, uh, that it is just a fun process and it takes a lot of the pressure off because you can just enjoy sort of, you know, crafting an argument using whatever technique you'd like. Well, speaking of the joys of interpreting poetry and the rewards of literature, can you tell us a little bit about how you would envision this book being used in the classroom by educators? Yeah, well, it's funny because when I was actually doing my doctoral work at uh, the University of Texas at Austin, I actually pretty much just trialed this content uh, in a classroom on poetry interpretation that I was teaching myself. I didn't have my students read any of the book or anything like that. I wasn't assigning my own work. Uh, but each of the different parts, those four parts that basically we just in class, we had the Whitman poem. Uh, and then we talked a bunch about the words and what we can make of the words. And then we had the next class, we talked about the history and I gave them all these handouts on, you know, Whitman's history on, you know, works of art that are relevant to it. All these other things about the civil war uh, that might be, that might come to bear on the work. Uh, and then the next class we, you know, watched the poem when it was presented 
in you know on YouTube or uh, in Breaking Bad or when somebody did a cartoon version of it. And then in the end, we talked about how it related to students' lives individually. So over the course of four days, we sort of on each day tackled one of the parts of the book. Uh, and I think that you could pretty much do the same thing in any class you know, going forward uh, is just being able to, you know, have the book, have them read sections. Each section is broken down into six parts. So it's really easy to sort of pick and choose, you know, which pieces you would want to emphasize, you know, and the book as, you know, that text message example gives, it has, you know, more popular examples of the modern day. It talks about television. It talks about the modern era. It talks about, you know, stuff that happened more than 100 years ago. Um, so there is sort of an inroads for anything. And the fact that the poem itself is only eight lines long uh, does really, you know, make it something easy and, you know, ascertainable. You can really just, you know, work deeply within those eight lines without it getting scattered too far afield. Well, I think that students will really enjoy the way that you weave together modern day references with historical ones. Um, the section on Breaking Bad is, is really so much fun. And that's only one example. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, these modern day references being paired with historical material. And with that in mind, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about the contemporary relevance of poets like Whitman? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, I think it just makes it more fun. <laughs> you know, I think it's easy when you're talking about somebody like Shakespeare or somebody like Whitman or Milton or any of these old timers, to just sort of, you know, stick it in a museum, you know, and just be like, oh, we're only gonna talk about the 19th century. We're only gonna talk about the 16th century. But the reason why these works are meaningful, the reason why they're significant is the timeless element of them. Um, the fact that they, you know, are gonna be lasting. I think maybe one thing that might help with that is if, I'm, I'm just gonna go ahead and read the Whitman poem real quick, just to sort of give an example. Uh, so here, here's the eight-line Whitman poem that the dissertation deals with. Uh, it's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. So you can think about this poem in the sense of 1865, like the Civil War is ending, you know, Whitman himself potentially goes and views an astronomer partway through, he's not feeling well. And there's all this stuff in the manuscript about why he wouldn't have been feeling well. He had health problems from being a nurse in the Civil War, all these sort of things. Uh, and then going outside and like looking at the stars and feeling a sense of peace, right? You can link all that to Whitman, but 
these are the same feelings that any of us could have today, like being in class, being in a lecture, being in, you know, a, a Zoom meeting at work, you know, as an adult, any of these things. And you're sort of like, oh, God. And then you just like can't take it anymore. And then you go outside and you're like, wow, what a beautiful world it is. Um, so I think that there's always, you know, the, the greatest literature is the literature that's not just going to be a time capsule. It's going to be something that, you know, lasts and stands the test of time. Uh, and I think poems like this are particularly relevant uh, to the current era, just because they show some aspect of the universality of human experience, uh, even, you know, in a fragmented world like the one we have today. And of course, the one that we had then. Yeah, absolutely. And your own poems um, really do exactly that. They use the personal, um, you know, these kind of contemporary scenarios like travel as a kind of doorway into more universal questions and considerations. And so with that in mind, what are you currently working on? Yeah, so uh, I'm definitely, you know, happy that, you know, The Forgotten World is out there. That book took me about seven years uh, to put together um, because it is a book about sort of traveling around the world. And that's not something that you can do immediately when you're, you know, have a job and you have children. Uh, you know, so now what I'm working on is some new poems. I've sort of really deliberately uh, tried to write poems now that aren't about travel, that aren't about, you know, uh, sort of like being in different countries. Uh, so I'm having a really good time with that. It feels, you know, fresh and new uh, to work on new poems, to not feel any sort of pressure to finish a, a project. Uh, and also just to be at that early stage of working on a book where you don't quite know yet what it's actually going to be. Yeah, the, the poet Dana Roser, whose work I greatly admire, she has this great phrase, discovering the shape of the book as it emerges. And that's just one of the best aspects of writing, for me at least. Uh, but while we are on the, the subject of current projects, tell me about Atmosphere Press. Yeah, so Atmosphere Press uh, is, uh, you know, my, my life, <laughs> for lack of better terms. This is a, a, a publisher that I started in 2015 and uh, have really sort of set in high gear since 2018. Uh, it's an all genres uh, hybrid publisher and we, you know, help authors, you know, get their books published. Uh, we do editorial services for them, you know, cover design, proofreading, interior layout design, uh, distribution, promotion, the whole deal. Uh, and it's been, you know, just an extremely fun and rewarding process because in the literary world, you know, there are lots of people who go to MFA programs who, you know, are, you know, trying to get tenure that are sending out their manuscripts and entering contests and doing all of this, trying to get traditionally published. But there are a lot of people out there who, you know, 
they want their work to be treated well and they, you know, don't necessarily want to go through the rigmarole of, you know, submitting to contests forever and ever or trying to find an agent. Um, so we've really worked hard to try to, you know, create a super high quality opportunity for these people to have their work, you know, treated well by professionals. Uh, and it's worked out really well. We've gotten tons of great reviews for uh, books that we've put out recently, uh, you know, starred reviews and Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and all this other sort of stuff. And it's just been I, uh, you know, just an incredible pleasure and point of pride being able to, you know, help uh, authors and, you know, observe author rights and just put a lot of really great literature out into the world. What a great project. And circling back to your scholarly work, how can the critical thinking skills fostered by poetry equip students for life and careers outside of the classroom? Yeah, I really like love that question. I love that idea because it sort of is related to that idea of like, oh, can poetry matter? What's the point? And then in higher education, there's always all this emphasis on, you know, vocational training and put people in hard sciences and stuff like that and like forsake the liberal arts. But really, you know, if you know how to interpret a poem well, you're going to know how to interpret pretty much anything well. Uh, because it's all just a matter of, you know, looking at data closely. Uh, and I think that's kind of what that example with the text message, like you just have the word fine, right? And you need to try to know what that means. We've all been in those sorts of situations where there's a misunderstanding, where people are communicating with each other. They're not really knowing what's going on. You get a message from somebody, you're, you know, in an argument with somebody, like you're at work, you're trying to ask for a raise, like anything that could possibly ever happen. All of these scenarios involve an aspect of interpretation. Uh, and studying poetry is really an opportunity to practice the skill of interpretation. So if you get really good at interpreting words in a poem, even if you never read another poem for the rest of your life, you're going to be much better at interpreting words in any other context as well. Uh, and I really do you know, believe that to be true. And I think it is a, you know, a, really a statement for the continued relevance of of poetry, of reading, of deep thinking about what words mean. Yeah, agreed. And thank you so much for appearing on the Compulsive Reader podcast. It was such a pleasure to learn more about your work. And thank you for sharing your time and insights. Um, that is our episode for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for having me.